Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out what that random series of numbers on Lost really meant. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Untuck It. And as fate would have it, if you could see, if we had cameras here, you'd know I am actually wearing an Untuck It shirt. So comfortable and wonderful that they are. Um, so today we have a, uh, we're making up for a long um, uh, overdue thing, in part because we're getting some feedback from people who miss Jack Butler. And um, they miss his quirky, weird, slightly serial killer vibe, um, the sort of intense nerdiness that, uh, you know, what is it that Dr. Evil says, the something of the... the the, the madness that only the damned lament or something. I can't remember. But uh, we all know that Jack one day will wake up in a pool of blood, not his own. And um, and so since that's a hard niche to fill, um, we decided not to try. And instead we're bringing in uh, one of our crack star reporter writers at uh, The Dispatch and perhaps the oldest young man I know. <laughs> Andrew Egger. Andrew, welcome aboard. Hey, welcome here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's yeah. great to have you here. You are also a Hillsdale monster. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, definitely. I worked for Jack at the at the college paper a little bit. Yeah, but that, that's you know. So I mean, it's like at least you're a member of the Hillsdale Mafia. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Um, what is like if you had to say among righty Washington journalist Hill types, what? would you say is the core number of the Hillsdale Mafia right now? Oh my goodness. Well, they're, they're so diffuse, right? I mean, the only, the only real way to, uh, to, to get a head count is to go to say the, the Kirby center Christmas party or something like that. And even yeah. that is taking place on, on multiple floors of a building with a lot of flow up and down. It's, I mean, it's in the hundreds, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's a good, it's a good number of people. Um, most of those people, uh, were in the politics department at Hillsdale. And yeah. so, frighten me a little bit and I, I I get flustered around them I have a hard time you know maintaining eye contact with these like stone cold killers uh-huh, uh-huh. so uh so um so I, my Rolodex is not as full of uh, of an exhaustive count as as you might hope in order to get a really good answer to that so question. when you when you go to the the Kirby Center thing um is it like the wedding at the beginning of the Godfather right so members of all the different families are there but there's a hidden unspoken tension between different tribes or different families there, right? Um, presumably, you don't just because someone went to Hillsdale and knows the handshake doesn't mean that like all of a sudden you'd lay down your life for him and okay. your buddies, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a certain amount of that. I I, I was a little surprised when I came out here. Um, I mean, obviously Hillsdale's a pretty small school. It's like yeah. 1,400 undergrad at any given time, um, and it's it's a, a little clicky while you're there. I mean, you you tend to hang out with people in in your department because the department is sort of like so, the department thing is kind of self sorting mm-hmm. philosophically. I mean, if you look at things a specific way, you'll probably be hanging with the history people or with the politics people or with the English people or whatever. Um, but I was kind of surprised when I got out here that uh, to a certain degree, all of that sort of washes out and you're just like, oh, you remember that weird little school we went to in Michigan that was awesome and great and we loved it. And uh, and we sort of have that in common and, you know, we have to work a little harder to find things that are in common with anybody else. So it does it does, it does does come out in the wash a little bit in, uh-huh. in that way. So um, I didn't plan on talking about this, but I was just trying to, I was going through, rooting through the folder in my brain about similarities between Egger <laughs> and, and Butler and it came up to me. But, uh, so like, I'm a big fan of Hillsdale. I remain a big fan of Hillsdale. Uh, 
there are fewer and fewer people in the faculty administration who are fans of mine, but that's, you know, this is the life we live. Fewer and fewer people, to be fair. That's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> although I think the degradation of the ranks of people who are my fans is disproportionately high among a certain that's right. that's really fair to say. <laughs> and, um, like, uh, if you were going through the data and you were trying to shed fans, you would, like, your data gurus would look at the numbers coming in from, like, faculty and staff at Hillsdale, and they would say, you are way ahead of projections here. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Let's concentrate on some other institutions. Um, but I'm still a fan of Hillsdale, and I still have friends there. And um, uh, But one of the things I have always thought, and I, I don't mean this really as a criticism, but there is this weird thing. For, for people who don't know, Hillsdale is this uh, liberal arts college. It's its reputation is of being conservative, and I, I think to a certain extent that's fair, but it's really more of a classical liberal arts college where it doesn't go in for the PC stuff that much. I would argue that there's a little bit of the PC, right-wing PC stuff happening there, but that's a different argument. Um, and But the, the thing is, in Washington, the impression is, is that it is just a school full of right-wing kids. And when you actually go out there, that's really not it, right? I mean, yeah, the people are sort of conservative or traditionalist in various ways, but most of them don't really care about politics. And it's only because you mutants who like politics show up here that we think because 100% of the refugees from Hillsdale who come to Washington are political nerds. You just assume, well, everyone I've ever met from Hillsdale is a political nerd, and they must all be. And then you go there and you find out everyone's arguing, most people are arguing about their grades in French lit. Right. Well, yeah, no, there, there's there's a good amount of that. And I, I mean... To push back a little bit on that, I, I uh, personally wasn't even a politics nerd at Hillsdale. I just sort of, I don't, I have no idea how I ended up out here. I sort of uh-huh. like tripped over my own feet and f- found myself getting up in Washington D.C. Um, but, but you're you're totally right that that there's there's a much greater sort of breadth of of interests and of you know uh, dispositions and even even you know uh, uh, intellectual foundations among the different yeah. classes of people there. And, and uh, it is obviously in, in one sense a very deliberately inculcated brand by the part of the college. They're like, we want to be sort of the conservative Harvard or something like that. You know, they, they lean into that in talk radio and, and the, the, um, and with, with a lot of their public facing programs and things like their online classes. And I think a lot of the, the students there, they don't, they don't dislike any of that. They just sort of have like a, a bemused, uh, sort of fond relationship with the college as it's presented to, uh, to the public. They're yeah. like, well, this is, you know, this is the brand, um, you know, builds a lot of goodwill with people. It's not necessarily our cup of tea, but we, you know, we all see why they do it. And we're, you know, no, nobody has an enormous problem with that. Although obviously, uh, it's become more fraught a little in, uh, in recent years. Yeah. Yeah. There's some of that. I mean, I'll tell you when I, I, so I talked that class i first met jack butler when he was in my class and i i thought for a bit about calling security um but um um the kids are very smart you know and i think that one of the things that hillsdale's advantages is is that in particular homeschooled kids um i i just i kind of in my gut believe that a lot of elite schools look down on homeschooled kids and so Hillsdale gets to pick kids that should be much more competitively bid on by like top 20 schools. But since they're not, they get to pick them up at a bargain price kind of thing. Right. And um, and then the other thing I sort of was sort of fascinating to me was that I discovered, and maybe we should actually do a podcast on homeschooling at some point, but um, uh, there are many rooms in the mansion of homeschooling. And so like there are like, 
very different kinds of kids and different f- kinds of homeschooling. So like some of it's just like mom and kid for 12 years at the kitchen table with the textbook. And others are like, they got these other, you know, informal associations and they go to different houses and they do different things. They're coming in with like a full slate of college credits already because that's like all they've done for like two years. Yeah. You know, and and some of them just take the ISDN line from their computer and plug in Khan Academy into their ear (laughs) and just like download it. So anyway, um, I didn't plan on having a sociology of Hillsdale conversation, but I just... But I'm glad we did. But but now I've checked that box and I don't have to do it for a while. And and this will be sort of a die marker to see how many people from Hillsdale listen to this podcast and get angry at I, me. I hope they don't get, get mad at me, honestly. Well, they shouldn't get mad at me. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I'm in management and I forced you into the conversation. I forced you into this podcast. So uh, you can claim that you're doing this all under duress. So um, how long have you been in Washington? Uh, let's think about that. I graduated in... Uh, Spring of 2017, uh-huh. so we're going on three full years, if I'm doing the math correctly. And uh, when did you get married? Got married at the end of 2017, December 30th, 2017. So, I, I, I just bring that up. I think it's a wonderful thing, but uh, just bring that up to sort of lend some heft behind my oldest young man I know um, statement, because it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to get married that young. I, I wish I had gotten married. I'm a young. fan of my own marriage, of uh, <laughs> the time at which it happened, of what's you know how it's gone so far. You know, so yeah. thank you, thank you. Yeah. No, um, no, it's 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 you, you, it's rare in Washington, you know, and it's increasingly rare statistically. So I think it's a great thing. Um, all right, so last night was the Democratic debate, oh, yeah. uh, and um, I think it's fair to say it was one of the greatest primary debates in recorded human history. Um, oh. Without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were your highlights? What do you think was the big takeaway for you? I was just, I was surprised. Okay, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I still was a little surprised at how uh, catty it got. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Most of these, most of these debates so far, and what was this, the tenth one or something nonsensical like that? Um, for, for for a lot of these debates, there's been a really strong uh, pressure on each of the candidates to to play a pretty clean game right. um, because one of the biggest things that's motivating Democratic primary voters this this cycle is is just this overwhelming desire to keep everybody uh, harmonious and, and and working together to, to beat Donald Trump since, since he's seen as such an existential threat. Um, and so there's been there's been negative pressure for a lot of these um, not to be seen as the guy who's being tendentious and not being a team player and fomenting discord within the party. Uh, I think it was... It was a couple things. It's the fact that that now there is uh, actual there's actual votes to be right. to be uh, squabbled over at each of these debates now. Um, so that that was one one reason why they they got a they got a little more at each other's throats last night. But it's also the, do do well or go home. At yeah, this point, yeah, right? yeah. Um, but but the the bigger thing and the 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 thing that really set this debate apart from from all the previous ones was just the fact that that Michael Bloomberg was on stage for the first time last night. And uh, and I don't think he is part of anybody's gentleman's agreement. <laughs> about yeah. about keeping keeping things clean at the debates because everybody went after him hard for pretty much the whole the whole night and and because early on um particularly Elizabeth Warren landed some really big hits on him that he just he just flailed around under and really did not show any um any capability to really get out from under I think people sort of smelled blood in the water and and uh and it was it was a long night for 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 Mayor Bloomberg. Yeah, so I'm like I mean, he had an answer on stop and frisk. I didn't think it was great, but it was like clearly an answer that they had worked out in advance and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I was pretty stunned that that for someone who is as 
Haley Barber would say, spending so enough money to scald a wet mule that uh, they did not hire a consultant or have one of their consultants come up with an answer for this NDA thing, you know, the sexual harassment NDA thing. You know, I mean, he looked like literally he was thinking through his answer to whether or not he would release these women from the NDAs on the fly. Right, right. And there's an old rule in politics, which is that if you are a signatory to a number of sexual harassment non-disclosure agreements, figure out what your response to questions like that are before you get on a debate stage. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, so j- just to back up a little bit, basically what happened is uh, Bloomberg's taken some flack over the last couple of days because I-, I believe it's something on-, on the order of 40 settlements that he and his companies have made with different women over the years um, that included non-disclosure agreements for, for sexual harassment or sexual uh, gender discrimination uh, uh, cases brought against, complaints brought against him and his companies. And, um, and, and, that's been getting some play. And so he did he did come into the debate last night with an answer prepared for what's the deal with all these NDAs and things. Because um, basically he said, well, you know, I, I have a lot of women working at my companies. My, my foundation's run by a woman. Uh, it's been rated one of the best places uh, to, to, to work um, in, in America. You know, clearly there are a lot of women who, who don't have problems. And so all, all of that, you know, if that was if that was all that had been said on the matter, um, then I think he would have gotten gotten through fine. I mean, it wasn't a great-looking moment for him. Um, n- none of these moments were great for him, obviously. He's kind of lemony and, and, and fussy and mm-hmm. grouchy on stage, and that came through. Um, but but what, where, where he really got savaged was with Elizabeth Warren's follow-up question, which, which I think you're right. I mean, I, it, it was certainly within the realm of questions, yeah. which you perhaps should have been able to anticipate, which was, well, okay, clearly a lot of women do have a problem working with you, but, but that still leaves these ones who, who didn't. And don't the American people have sort of a right, if you want to be president, to know what was happening, what what went on in those NDAs? And so it, it did seem as though he was completely unprepared to have that particular question sprung on him of, are, are you willing now to let these women let these women tell their stories? And he he just he completely floundered. It was, yeah. it was sort of hard to watch. And I was kind of torn whether or not he should have done the Donald Trump response which is oh we're going to release them in due time yeah. right and just, just lie you know right. Right. run out the clock a little bit yeah. like it's sort of free beer tomorrow kind of uh-huh. thing uh-huh. um but um um so my friend michael brendan doherty uh over at nr he made the case that bloomberg should not have joined that debate in the first place and i thought it was an interesting perfectly legitimate argument to make beforehand but then afterwards it turns out he just nailed it right i mean right. like right why not build the anticipation? Why not treat like I wrote this column six months ago that Biden should just run a front porch campaign, not do debates, not campaign. Seem like all that stuff is for people less than him. It's a return to normalcy campaign, and um, and just sit it out kind of thing. And Biden, for all sorts of probably legitimate reasons, felt he couldn't do that. It seems to me Bloomberg could have waited a little while before he jumped into this thing. You know, if it became down to like a two-person race, Bloomberg versus Bernie, then you jump in and he would look kind of good. But right, right. No, I, I, I totally agree with that, and I, I, I just think that maybe he and his his people did not sufficiently think through how how bad the thing could possibly go. I mean, yeah. I think that the in weighing the pros and cons, they were like, well, you're 
you're a candidate. The fact that you've qualified is is surprising because nobody thought you were going to be qualifying for these debates. So just being on stage and is in a sense a win for you because you've come out of nowhere to to do these things since announcing only in only in November. Uh, I I wrote a piece uh, for for the site last night after for the Dispatch dot com last night after nice. the debate. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And uh, and I was actually. I had not read that argument from from uh, Michael Brennan Doherty, but I was I was pondering that same question as I was writing it because uh, his strategy, Bloomberg's electoral strategy, is just so far around uh, any kind of any kind of lane where where doing things like showing up at debates and seeming right. more personable and 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 basically. Um, um, presenting yourself as the best choice for really keyed in informed voters to make um, just doesn't really have anything anything to do with the the campaign he's been trying to run because the the whole point of the Bloomberg candidacy is that he has jumped in now um, after you know six months of all these blue million other candidates right. you know beating each other senseless not not in not in these personal terms as we said earlier but just you know the, the infighting about policy and things like that and uh, and to to a point where and, and the fact that there's still so many undecided Democratic voters even after those six months that he's now just splashing down with this shock and awe spending campaign to basically be able to say you guys don't need to worry about any of that you don't need to put in your ten thousand hours of of deciding which right. Democratic candidate super fits your bill uh, you you just want to beat Trump and so if you if you've sort of checked out from that. Uh, from that whole process at this point, here I come with my $300 million spending spree to basically just tell you over and over and over and over and over again, look, I'll beat Trump and, right. and to build this brand around that. And so and so really, it was almost like a Wizard of Oz sort of sort of moment last night where 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 the the Michael Bloomberg who shows up on stage is not the Michael Bloomberg who comes across in any of these, you know, campaign materials that he's been barraging the country with. So it's uh, it was a little confusing. And I, I think I, I'll be I. It, what will be interesting to see is if he if he if he does it again, right? I right. Mean, right. Given given how badly last night went for him. Um, before we move on, did I hear you use the phrase "blue million"? Was that what you said? I, that's I, I don't know that phrase. A blue million? Uh huh. That's a. I think that's real, right? Is that real? Is that, did I? <laughs> I don't know. I've uh, said it. I've been saying it for years. Like, <laughs> um. Oh no, my well. You're not. We'll get, I'll get back to you on. Okay, that. <laughs> I, I just didn't know it. I, it's it's entirely possible that it's 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 a thing. Um, uh, it's okay. Uh, UrbanDictionary.com coming through for me. Uh, all they say is a phrase that Southern people go figure say to mean a lot or something akin to that. So I'm not a I, Southern. Well, I'm from St. Louis. St. Louis. So. Which side of the St. Louis? So that was like Jayhawk weird. Kansas kind of stuff going on, Civil War, right? Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Not Mason Dixon, one way or the other. Right, right. Well, and St. Louis, weirdly, is because it's because uh, it's a river city, trading city, has a lot more in common culturally with um, with both places further up the Mississippi and down in like New Orleans than yeah. in like, the surrounding. It's yeah. To go in a completely different direction. Have you ever done that New York Times accent identifier thing? Yeah, no. That's does it's it get you fun? Yeah, no, it does. But it's like there's just this tiny, tiny little pocket, right? Uh -huh. Like. It's like boom, St. Louis. Like that's yeah. so. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. I think if people want to find it. Uh, but uh, it got me down literally within ten blocks of where I grew. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Completely missed my wife. Oh it's yeah. Like like Upper Minnesota, and she's from <laughs> Fairbanks, Alaska. Right. Okay. And just like, but I partly my guess is because very few people are actually from Alaska, and mm. so you get. It, it kind of mixes up the data set, right? Right. And then, right. Um, and then probably very few people from Alaska 
were providing data for that thing. But it was just weird. It was like everybody I knew, it just pegged them perfectly. And then just like my wife did not register on it. <laughs> no, but I, so you bring this up. So I've been thinking about it. I, I normally, you know, I hate jinxing these things because whenever I have an idea for a G file and I give it voice or I settle on it the day before, um, I end up not wanting to write it when I actually have to write it. Um, but so I had this theory that the way Trump won, you ever see, do you ever see Wag the Dog? I never saw Wag the Dog. Okay. So, um, apologies. Hope that it's doesn't. A, it's a fantastic movie. Um, I actually want to do a piece um, for the dispatch of of political movies that because I got into this argument with your colleague Declan Garvey about this is that he hadn't seen a, a host of movies that I think one must see to be just politically literate, and Wag the Dog's definitely one, right? But so are more obscure ones for you whippersnappers like uh, <laughs> uh, Face in the Crowd, Network. Um, I can make a long list here. Um, but anyway, there's this thing in Wag the Dog from which we get in politics these days the phrase Wag the Dog. Um, I feel like I'm explaining a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich <laughs> to, to Eddie Murphy. Um, have you seen Trading Places? I have not seen Trading Places. Jesus Christ, Sorry. you're fired. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, no wonder you went to Hillsdale. Um, so a scholarship for people who have not seen Trading Places. Yeah. Uh, um, so there's this thing where uh, Robert De Niro plays this political consultant who um, is uh, who hires Dustin Hoffman, who's a movie producer, and there's this thing where they conclude that they, they create this entire fake thing in the Balkans, this war crisis scenario, and they create this fake prisoner of war, American prisoner of war that they want to, hostage that they want to bring home. And there's this great little speech in there where they explain that um, you can't bring home old shoe, played by Woody Harrelson, before the election. You got to wait till after the election because the your vote is your ticket to see how the movie ends. Right. 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 And uh, readers of my book, now out in paperback, um, and listeners of this podcast know I make a big deal about how people are following politics as a form of entertainment these days, and that's a really bad thing. And that movie is actually a great little textbook on that phenomenon. And it's like if you bring them home before the thing, they're going to want some watch something else. But if you if you say if you implicitly message that you'll get to see the story come to the happy ending if you buy the ticket that reelects this president, that's blah blah blah. I was convinced that one of the things that got Donald Trump elected was that it was kind of like King Ralph or something. It was just like, I got to see what it's like to see Donald Trump as president of the United States. Everyone could imagine what Hillary Clinton as president was like. It was like, but Donald Trump, president, that's, that's just wild stuff. I got to see how this ends, uh -huh. right? And there was a certain amount of psychological, I just want to play this out kind of thing. I think Bloomberg, if he had, first of all, if he had done better in the debate, but, uh, a smart strategy for him, combined with the sort of front porch thing of staying aloof, right, not getting grubby with the other people, if they messaged continuously, um, often subtly, that, for example, Trump will refuse to leave and how great will it be to see him pulled from the White House, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and I'm not saying that's true, uh -huh. right? This is, a, this is truly a matter of political analysis and not like my own thing. But... Uh, 
you would see a lot of people who'd say, I just want to see that. I want to, you know, it's like, I want to see Superman fight the Hulk. And I want to see like the Marines escort the president right, out right. of the White House and Bloomberg say, you know, collect your things and go, that right, kind of stuff. Right. And, so l- let, me, let me extend this metaphor just a uh, little bit at my own peril. Um, j- just to say that, that I, I feel like for a lot of people, the, the Democratic primary to this point is, is something like, I don't know, Game of Thrones or something like that, where you can't really tune in and see like hit the ground running in season five of Game of Thrones. Right. So like if, if you were late to the phenomenon and didn't want to like go back and do all the legwork of like getting caught up on who all these people are and what all their little uh, histories and their, their right. personal beef with each other and things like that is what you're, you might not, you might not be, be getting invested in that. And so all Bloomberg really needs to do is create some sort of like completely other reality where it's like, you don't have to pay attention to any of that. This yeah, is going to yeah. be just as fun on its own. Just, just right. you and me, just you and me. Right. <laughs> right. Right. No, that, I think that's right. Uh-huh. I think that would have been the smarter play uh-huh. is just be sort of like when asked, do you want to like, like I made a prediction on the dispatch podcast that I said, I conditioned it. I said, if they all attack him and he's above the fray and he swats it all away, It'll enhance his prospects of getting the nomination, and much because like Trump got attacked by lots of people, mm-hmm. and he just sort of brushed it all away right, and right. blustered his way through it. And being attacked by everybody kind of makes you look like an alpha sometimes, uh-huh. right? If you don't crush, crumble under the pressure, right, right? And if you can just shrug it off. And if he had had done that last night, I think he would have been in much better shape now. But he didn't do that. He looked nervous. He sounded mousy, um, or as you put it, lemony. Um, which is another interesting adjective. Uh, um, but um, I think that that a smarter play would have been just to say, this TV show is boring. Right. Check out this new TV show right. that premieres this week with <laughs> Michael Bloomberg, right? And just right. show up. And every time journalists asked him a question that he didn't like, he should just reach in his pocket and grab a fistful of $100 bills and throw it in their <laughs> face and say, shut up. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of that going on. Uh, regard- I mean, th- th- that's the thing is that we're, we're, we're talking about these these two plays as though it's like one or the other, but really right. they're, they're both ongoing, right? I mean, right. like he's continuing to spend just an insane amount of money Um Every day, (laughs) and so and so, it's literally just a question of to what degree will um, will these these black eyes from things like last night or any subsequent ones down the campaign trail, long long primary still to go. um, But but to what degree will those you know permeate through and 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 actually change people's minds, or or is he actually now going to be able to um, you know really just sort of create this alternate reality zone in which in which it's just you know. Just voters and Bloomberg ads on their YouTube videos, or between their between you know shots on their TV shows or whatever. And so I, we won't know until Super Tuesday. I mean, Super Tuesday will have a much better sense of uh, of of whether there's anything to this or whether it's all completely just a media bubble where it's right. just we we all have dollar signs in our eyes and are so flabbergasted by by just the fact of the thing. Because I mean, like like you say, um, politics is entertainment. Clearly, there's like a lot of interesting things that that could be coming down the pipe with with uh, with Bloomberg, but just just what, where we are now is still just wild. I mean, just, no, it's just great. the scale of the thing is so ma- so much more massive than yeah. any political presidential uh, spending spree we've ever seen, and yeah. so it's just it's kind of fun to watch just now for that for that reason alone. I saw somewhere on the twitters that um he's already spent more than Obama did in 2012, which is pretty wild yeah i haven't, I haven't seen that it's a primary right right the, the fact that i the fact that i've seen is that despite the fact that there was already a billionaire in the race who was basically trying to run the buy the race playbook and, right. and tom steyer 
and de- despite the fact that Steyer's been in the race for like a year longer than him, Bloomberg has already doubled the amount of spending on on ads and campaign stuff that the entire rest of the field has combined yeah, together. Yeah. Just I mean, it's just nonsensical amounts of money. Okay, so you like way too many of our staffers uh, are from the Midwest. Correct. Um, you speak Midwest. That's uh, that seems to be correct. Um, and we sent you out to the Midwest twice now? Yes. To both, cover this both stuff? Both times to Iowa. Yeah, so Prior to the Iowa caucuses. Two of the primary Midwestern candidates, or like the only ones now, are Buttigieg and Klobuchar. And I want to use technical political science terms. They seem to hate each other <laughs> with a blinding hot passion. Yes. No, can you that, explain? Uh, now, can you... Put this in a either political context or a Midwestern context that I don't quite necessarily grok onto. So uh, I will I will start with the political context, and maybe we'll see whether we can work up to some protracted uh, analogy about the Midwest okay. uh, as we go. But uh, the the political thing is essentially just that Klobuchar and Buttigieg are fighting over the same pool of voters, roughly, with two very different pitches, which is that um, they're both basically going after uh, uh, white, middle-class to working-class, small-town, rural, um, people who would sometimes be considered like like dem- uh, like a swing voters, right? Um, mm. Like or Obama Trump voters or things like that. They both they both of their pitches are sort of keyed on on a on a potential. Uh, attractiveness in themselves to that kind of voter. Obviously, that's not like their base. Their base is the Democratic base. They're they're trying to sell themselves to the Democratic base based on the notion that they will also be appealing to right. these guys and thus more electable. But but Pete is obviously, um, you know, his their their paths are so, so different. Buddha Judge is just this former small town mayor who just kind of caught fire due to him being sharp and smart and looking the part and uh, and having and, a really good messaging team and gay. I mean, I mean, you, yeah, I, you yeah. may not want to say it, but he raised an enormous amount of money from being gay. Right. Right. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that, I take your point. I mean, that that is, it, it's the thing that allows him to to sort of key on a, a, some element of historicity in, in his campaign that he wouldn't otherwise have, um, which is helpful. Um, and then Klobuchar is is just, you know, she's she's a senator from, from Minnesota. She's won tough races before. She's won in, you know, she's won the vote in red and purple districts. Um, so she has this strong electability argument. She's gotten a lot done in the Senate um, in sort of a bipartisan way. Um, and, and so uh, that's basically her pitch. It's just like, I've gotten these, I've gotten these things done. Um, the but last night was really the first time they, they've squabbled a little in previous debates. Klobuchar's dinged uh, Buddha Judge for making this like generational change pitch when when he is really just a small town mayor. I mean, mm-hmm. you could elect an Amy Klobuchar or something and still make the argument that's that's generational change. Um, but but last night, um, to back up just a little bit, uh, Klobuchar had an uh, a gaffe in this past week where she was, uh, I, I believe it was a Univision hit. Um, in, in Nevada, she was at, at some event, and she was unable to remember the name of the president of Mexico, the current mm-hmm. president of Mexico. Um, and uh, and it was just this sort of, you know, embarrassing moment for her. Like, whatever, uh, flag on the play. Um, Buttigieg then, last night, basically tried to spin that, that, that moment out into this full argument about, um, about sort of, 
unfitness, about unpreparedness to to um, to assume the office, and all these. So, uh, Buttigieg, by the way, was at the same event and could remember his name. So that's why he was yeah. that's why he was making hay uh, out of this thing. Um, and but he he laid it on so thick last night, and and Klobuchar just seemed really indignant about it. Like like really, You're, like the the fact that I blanked on this guy's name is supposed to disqualify me from holding you know high office. Mm-hmm. In favor of you, Mayor Pete, and so <laughs> and so she got really mad and or seeming seemed seemed really mad. She said, uh, "What what what did she say? Um, we, we can't all be as perfect as Pete." At one point, was one thing she said. She she said she asked him if he was calling her dumb. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was prickly. And I I, I mean personally, I think the word you're looking for is awesome. But go well, on. you know, it was, I mean, it was it made good TV. I, I and I I get why Buttigieg leaned into those attacks because he because uh, Klobuchar has been effective in pulling some voters away from him. He's had the inside track. He's he's got the delegate lead in the race right now. Um, but but in New Hampshire, Klobuchar uh, was surging and seemed to be pulling some of some voters who he thought should really be going to him. Um, but I, I just don't know that the attack really helped him much because because mm-hmm. like like, yeah, he got the point across that Klobuchar forgot this guy's name. Like, OK, people know that yeah. now probably more than they did. And- but most people don't know the guy's name, right? I right mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would need to look up the pronunciation at the very least right now, yeah. even after having sat through these, uh, you know, news cycles about it. That's the that's the, the benefits of working. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. It's Obrador. That it, Obrador. So I, I wasn't 100% sure that's what it was. But that's the perils of, you know, yeah. reading everything. I, I am sure a fluent Spanish <laughs> Mexican would think my Obrador needed more flourish. Right, right, okay. yeah. Well, yeah, so just, I mean, he got the point across, but he looked a little petty doing it because why would that disqualify a person from being president? Right. That's That was that was the gist of it. And there's also this undercurrent, which I think is kind of BS, kind of legitimate, but it's a psychological fact regardless, is that particularly among Democrats, any criticism that a Democrat levels at another Democrat, their brain immediately goes to, well, what about Trump? Mm-hmm. Right? And like, so... Uh, from releasing medical records to tax returns, all this kind of stuff, Democrats are like, well, wait a second, why are we holding ourselves as a standard if they're not holding themselves to that standard? Which right. is exactly how, part of a big reason why we got Trump is because we thought that like, we held ourselves to a standard that the Democrats didn't hold themselves right. to, yada, yada, yada. Right. And, and pretty soon, we're just all going to be fighting over canned goods and puddle water. Right. But, um... President Bobcat. Um, <laughs> smod. Uh... <laughs> Um, which would stop the pointless bickering. Okay, so, but on the Midwestern thing, here's the vibe I got from the two of them, that she is like the kind of strict, but kind of cool high school English teacher, right? You know, kind of like, you better hand your homework in on time and all that kind of stuff, Midwestern, Minnesota, passive aggressive kind of thing, Uh right? Um, But generally a decent kind of... And he's the star student who does probably best in her class, uh-huh. but still constantly complains that he didn't get the grade he wanted <laughs> or that we weren't told this was going to be on the test, that kind of stuff. Right, and it right. drives, there's a certain kind of like teacher who like, even though he's getting straight A's, right? It's like, you should be happy with what you're getting. Leave me alone. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that was sort of the vibe I got from that. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if that's a Midwestern thing, but it just that that's sort of what it was. But they, they, they truly seem to hate each other. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so to, so to do the sort of like politess assessment of the, of, of the interaction, 
operating purely on what may or may not be fairly termed Midwest social norms, uh-huh. um, you, you could make the argument that Pete got the better of it because he was the one who sort of maintained the the facade and was just sort of like, oh, I don't know what you're getting so upset about. You know? Right. Um, and, and she was the one who sort of like slipped a little and, and got, got... And so is that the rule with Midwesterners is that you can be as asinine as you want so long as you seem polite we are so far afield from from my sort of encyclopedic knowledge of what midwesterners are uh, or do but i mean it seems it seems uh, roughly there's a, there's a, yeah. a passive aggressive thing it's not it's just midwestern to, right I mean, yeah. like that, that's sort of true everywhere though. yeah no there's definitely a southern version of that right uh-huh. but uh-huh. like there is this thing about minnesotans in particular where they obey the forms of uh-huh. politeness uh-huh. but there's they it's so passive aggressive um, <laughs> that there's like kind of a. I mean, I don't find it with Iowans necessarily, but or even Wisconsinites, Wisconsin Indians. I think Wisconsinites would Wisconsinites. be the, the preferred. I should know this. I haven't spent as much time as I have. With <laughs> don't get you. mad if you're from Wisconsin and that's not correct. Um, but uh, um, I kind of like. I, I tweeted last night, and it was a movie reference that again you'll not have gotten. Uh, that I would love to see a movie where. She's a bail bondsman who has to. Um, I mean, she's a bounty hunter who has to get uh, Pete Buttigieg to a bail bondsman in 24 hours, um, but he refuses to fly. Which is the plot of a movie called um, uh, Midnight Run. Right now, I'm gonna freak out if I got it wrong in my brain because, um, and uh, yeah, with um, with uh, Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin and. Um, Arguably one of the funniest movies in the 1980s. Hmm. Great movie. Um, they made uh, movies in the 1980s. They did, in fact, and they weren't. They were in color. <laughs> um, and I'm old enough to remember when Charles Grodin was the host of a primetime MSNBC TV show. Huh. Um, but then again, I know who Charles Grodin is. Well, that was and, where I was going next. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Charles Grodin was an actor, and he was a. Uh, um, he wasn't a famous, he was a neat dresser, but not a famously good dresser. He could have been improved if he wore untuck it shirts. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a second. So as I said to, to young Andrew, and he's been looking uh, at, admiringly at my shirt this entire time, uh, I am wearing an untuck it shirt as we speak. It's one of those shirts that you can wear um, to... You know, maybe you can't wear to a wedding, but you can wear it as sort of businessy kind of things while still feeling like you're not getting dressed up. It's a it's a it's a great just sort of grab and go, look like a grown up, um, but feel like you're not like uh, you know you know Gulliver with all of these Lilliputian restraints like ties and blazers that button across your midsection. Um, and so I'm a big fan of untucked shirts, and I I have quite a few. So, but don't just take my word for it. Try Untuck It for yourself. Visit untuckit.com. That's untuckit.com. And use the promo code DINGO. That's D-I-N-G-O for 20% off your first order. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. That's untuckit.com. U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T. Dot com and promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O, for 20% off your first order. We thank Untucket for sponsoring the Remnant Podcast. 
All right. So um, if you had to make um, a non-binding prediction about where things go next, um, where do things go next on the primary side? I've, I'm interested so far in the way in which this thing is shaping up to look a lot like 2016, just in the sense that, I mean, this was definitely the mood last night. A couple people went after Bernie Sanders, um, but by and large, everyone seemed a little more concerned with going after the candidates who they really thought were holding on to voters that could be theirs. Their lane competitors. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I think even within the field there's this sense that 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 at least many, many, many of Bernie Sanders voters are just his and that you're not getting them no matter what you do. Um and so why fight over them? But I mean cl- clearly that plays to Sanders' advantage. I mean sure. the, the to have that is one thing and to have all your competitors believe that is another is another thing because there's obviously a a a danger that despite the fact that you know he he does not control a a majority certainly of the of the stake right now um there is there is this sense that that all the more the infighting is between everybody else the more he just sort of sails through um obviously that plays to his long-term advantage which is a lot of a lot like what happened to to donald trump in the 2016 primary so that's going to be interesting to watch i don't know for sure that's how it's going to play out i think i think uh i think it'll coalesce against sanders pretty quickly the question is just whether he builds up enough of an advantage on on super tuesday i think to where uh to where it's going to be like too little too late yeah i mean uh, i sometimes you know i mean all of these analogies are always strained right it's not exactly like 2016 but it's similar enough that it Mm -hmm. it, and there's the recency bias right where that was the last thing was pretty traumatic election so it gets stuck in your head Mm -hmm. is like being relevant and there's also like the Jeremy Corbyn analogy, right? Right. And I sometimes wonder, like, so let's, because I personally think, and again, this might be just because I would like it to be so. I think it's a good idea, which may not be the case. But Bloomberg, I thought, should have come in with some better zingers against Bernie. Mm-hmm. The only really good one he had was "What a great country this is," where the le- the most famous socialist in the country has three houses. Right. Yeah. Um. Which but, I mean, come on, like that's that's like a Twitter joke from like no, exactly, right. right? Yeah, no, it's low hanging fruit. I mean, and again, but this is also another problem is that we're on Twitter, we pay attention to Twitter. Um, there are probably two million people that this was the first debate they watched, uh-huh. right? You know, and so maybe that joke works for that crowd. You know, yeah. you never know. But like, it seemed to me when when Bloomberg suggested that. Bernie was a communist, and and Bernie came back. Um, that's a cheap shot. I'm a democratic socialist, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. There's just so much you can say. You know, I mean, like I made, I made this point about on Twitter. It is a cheap shot to call democratic socialist communist. There's a real difference there, right? At the same time, when the Soviet Union was still around, Bernie had nothing critical to say about it, which should tell you something about the kind of socialism he wants, right? Right. right. I mean, Ramesh has been writing about this. Jim Pithakoukas has been writing about this. Like, Bernie's conception of what Scandinavian socialism is is completely to the left of Scandinavian socialism. Mm-hmm. It's way to the left of what what Sweden and Denmark and those countries have. And he still works from this assumption that, like, the communist system, sure, the totalitarianism was bad and, the, you know, the shooting right. people and the forced starvation and maybe I wouldn't invade Poland. But uh, the basic economic assumptions were... 
yeah, you shouldn't have too many kinds of deodorant and all that kind of stuff. We're basically right. Mm -hmm. That's not how Sweden operates. That's not how Scandinavia operates. And no one wants to ding them for that. And I think part of it is this fear that if you attack Bernie too much, you turn off his voters. Mm -hmm. And that's the Corbyn analogy I want to know is like Corbyn got so shellacked in this last election because it got to the point where it was only the diehard Corbyn people who mm -hmm. were still with Corbyn. I don't know that that the diehard Bernie people amount... I mean, when I say diehard, I don't mean that just the people who think he's their first choice. That's a large number, presumably. Mm -hmm. I mean that the people who would refuse to vote for any other Democrat other than Bernie, my hunch is that's a much smaller number than a lot of these Democrats think. And taking Bernie head on is a smarter play than sort of being passive, you know, passively letting him, you know, just steamroll. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think it I think it it, it really goes back to the, the way that these these Democrats um, and, and, and a lot of people in the media as well have have just internalized this idea that that who Bernie supporters are. All these people who are going out and voting for Bernie in in the primaries are like the people who make fun of them when they tweet about Bernie. Right. You know, it's like it, it's the idea that his whole group of people is just this this massive horde of really online, uh, really kind of cranky and 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 thorny and and uh, don't play well with others types who are just gonna. Um, who are just going to try to like burn everything down if, if Bernie doesn't win. And clearly there are people like that. Yeah, it's probably um, like 30,000 people, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, no. right. No, it, it's, it, but it's clearly, it's <laughs> these people are disproportionately jumping into each of your Twitter mentions. You know? Right. So it's like, so, uh, so they, they occupy uh, an outsized place in your own like head. 15 minutes of the questions last night, mm -hmm. you know, which shows you the outside role that Twitter plays for journalists like the guys at MSNBC and and obviously at Fox too, you know I mean? Like, and, and like you, I meet people all of the time and I make this mistake all the time that I think that if I get attacked 200 times over the course of a day from people, well, the American people are against <laughs> <Right>. me. <you laughs> know? When in reality, there's still only about 0.02% of the American people at most who have ever heard of me. Right. You know? right. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, but your brain is wired that you like you just we're sort of inherent when it comes to emotion we're inherently innumerate you know uh -huh. and uh -huh. I think that a lot of journalists when they got attacked by Trump bots or when they get attacked by Bernie Bros or whatever they think it represents something much larger than it really right, is right right so to to push back on that just like a little bit I, I do think that there's there's a, a correct argument that's sort of like analogous to the argument that we're talking about which is just that. Um, the not all of Bernie Sanders supporters by any stretch are these incredibly online people who are who are just you know waiting on the on the edge of their seat to find out whether he is going to get screwed out of the nomination so that they can go and like burn down the convention center or something like that allegorically um but it is true that uh that by and large if you look at Bernie's people versus if you look at at say Elizabeth Warren's people or Buddha judge's people um those camps are are much more populated by people, the kind of people who who really feel strongly that they're going to vote for the Democratic nominee no matter who it is. And so, and I, I do think it is true that Bernie has has tapped into a lot of people who who 
wouldn't necessarily otherwise be really enthusiastic Democratic voters um, who, you know, who might show up, sure. uh, show up to the polls and vote, but who are not going to like go out and organize or, 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 or what have you. Um, and so there's there's that sense in which, you know, it, it, it's not it's not the it's not the squabbling. It's not like the online stuff. But it is uh, there, there is that worry that that going too heavily after Bernie Sanders will will damage the the party's prospects in that way. Um, but I but I totally agree that that I think these people have just have this idea in their heads that that, it, that he's like not worth going after when you could go after say uh, Mayor Bloomberg and try to try to get some of his own yeah. people over into your camp. So I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, look, that's sort of my like, like I'm not going to bore the hell out of listeners again with my stuff about the weak parties, but. Um, the only other party to kind of do something close to what we've disastrously done with the primary system is the UK, where the Labour Party basically said if you pay two pounds, you can vote in the nominating convention. And so, like, literally, they drained, you know, the bus stations, the underside of bridges, uh, the sewers, the mole people, the Morlocks. Um, they all came out. These people, these dregs, I'm being figuratively and politic, I mean, figurative about these people. They may be all wonderful human beings in real life, even though they smell like cabbage. But they were um, people that normally weren't part of the liberal, the, 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 the liberal part, not the liberal party, the um, Labor. Labor, party. Labor Party. And, um, but they all loved Corbyn. Mm-hmm. And so they showed up, they paid their two pounds, and they put this guy at the head of the party. Even though they didn't care about the party, they just cared about Corbyn. They were, mm-hmm. There's a cult of personality thing. This is a phenomenon that we've got. I mean, I don't want to go into you all in again, but this is a problem we got. It explains Bernie Sanders. It explains Donald Trump. It explains, to a certain extent, uh, Michael Bloomberg, where these personalities just basically come in and they use, they dragoon new forces from outside the party structure to take over the party because everything's done in public mm-hmm. and with mass appeal. And I don't know that the people who will only vote for Bernie, the way the people who could only vote for Corbyn are of such consequence that if the Democratic Party doesn't mobilize them, um, they automatically lose Trump, particularly when if mobilizing them is your only strategy for winning, that is going to turn off a lot of the moderate centrist voters that for most of our lives were essential to winning. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think that's I think that's I don't have any complaint with that. Um. All right, so uh, one of the things that you've been writing about, switching gears entirely, uh, one of the things you've been writing a bunch about lately and talking about a bunch lately, um, so much so that people just tend to slowly walk away. Um, That's most things. Yeah. Uh, you've been covering the the building of the wall on the- Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, why don't you lay out for people, um, you can find his- Pieces of the dis- pieces piece at the dispatch on this, and um, once you sort of lay out how where this stands now, uh, you know Trump invoked mer- emergency powers to build this thing. He's taking money from the Pentagon. Where where are we at on all that? Yeah. So um, so it, it, you guys will all probably remember, or maybe not. Um, uh, last year when all this stuff went down, uh, the 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 big fight right at the beginning of, of 2019 over over the border wall because um, once the Democrats took over the House of Representatives uh, in in the midterms, Nancy Pelosi obviously that, that that basically shot Trump's chance of getting any kind of of comprehensive uh, immigration. I say comprehensive immigration, just 
any sort of immigration deal done uh, through Congress. But uh, but on the spur of the moment, it seemed um, at the, right at the beginning of last year, he decided he was going to try. Pelosi and McConnell had agreed on a on a spending package, and Trump had had signed off on it. Uh, but then but then just as it was about to uh, about to go through, he switched gears and he said, this doesn't have money for my wall, so I'm not going to sign it. That led to the longest government shutdown in history, which remember that was like a year ago. It seems like <laughs> distant history. Um, but but uh, but so that, that happened. And that the, the resolution of that was that Trump finally caved. But he but he said, um, I'm I'm going to I'm going to sign the spending package you want. But then I'm going to declare this national national uh, this national emergency, uh, to, which which frees me up to to use all these all these other sort of extraordinary powers to reallocate money from different parts of the Pentagon budget. Uh, to build the wall, and it made a huge stink at the time. Um, There's a broad bipartisan bill uh, passed both houses of Congress to cancel the national emergency, to disapprove of it. Obviously, it got vetoed, and it was not able to to overcome the veto, so it went into effect. And uh, and it's uh, some some amount in the under ten billion, I believe, some some somewhere somewhere in the low single billions. Um, of of money that that he pulled from from wall construction and then uh, and then from other parts of the uh, sorry not, not from not wall, wall construction sure. from from other types of military construction mm-hmm. uh, hospitals and schools for military families and things like that um, some money was pulled from that fund and then some money was pulled from other parts of the department budget through uh, it was basically brought in as a pass through through a uh, a drug enforcement uh, uh, fund and so basically. That all went down last year, and then just this past week, uh, Trump renewed the thing, and he he announced what uh, what programs they were going to be pulling money out of. Uh, not not for the former fund, not with the not with the military construction fund. We don't know what that's going to look like yet. But with this second fund, with the with the drug enforcement, which is basically just uh, anywhere that they decided they wanted to, wanted to trim fat from the Pentagon budget, and uh, and this has created some headaches for. A num- for like a different group of Republicans mm-hmm. uh, than the ones who opposed the national emergency in the first place, because um, last year pork denying rather than constitutional defying. Right. Yeah. That's 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 pretty much exactly what it is. Because last year, uh, the the whole issue was that while technically speaking, yes, Trump did have the power to do all of these things w- under national emergency law. And there are no laws that govern what you're allowed to call a national emergency. Mm-hmm. It did seem just plain. To, to really anyone who took a look at it, that this was not what anybody had in mind when they said the president has a power to declare national emergencies, right? I mean, it's he, he has all of these, he's able to, to take control of all these extraordinary powers in cases where there isn't time for Congress to act or where, you know, there, there's like a sudden really pressing problem um, and you don't have time to mess with the, the, the legislative process. But this is him trying to deal with, like create a systemic answer to a systemic problem, decades long right. problem of of this. So, um, so last year it was mostly constitutionalists who who were unhappy. It was people like uh, Rand Paul and Mike Lee and um, some uh, uh, Justin Amash in the House and pe- people like that. Um, those people remain unhappy. There's uh, Mike Lee still has a still has a bill before the House that would, or sorry, before the Senate uh, that would cancel national emergencies after uh, after I believe thirty days mm-hmm. unless Congress actively votes to affirm them and they like have it. to be like it. it's a great bill i mean I, i'm i'm a fanboy for this bill i have been for more than a year and i'm real I, pelosi uh for what it's worth to not to get too far afield but she was the one who squashed it last year because uh-huh. she thought it was too she thought it, she she characterized it as a dodge she basically it, because because uh basically what the bill it was called the article one act and what it would have done was uh, anytime a new national emergency is signed congress has to vote to approve it within 30 days 
and then uh, and then they have to approve it again annually mm-hmm. um, or it or it just sunsets. Um, but Pelosi's argument was, well, he already declared this national this national emergency, so we're not going to take up this this bill that would allow um, you know that would allow uh, this one to sail through, and it's not it's not like we get you get one free grope or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, not looking back, I mean. If the bill had been passed, the emergency would now be ending. We would yeah. not be doing this thing. Uh, that strikes so anyway, me. Anyway, anyway, yeah, position. to go to go so far. That, that's so far afield from what's happening right now. What's happening right now is that uh, some some uh, military hawks in in Congress are unhappy because what uh, what the the DoD has decided to do is basically uh, scrape a bunch of money that was going to go to buy like you know like fighter planes and military helicopters and things like that. And instead now divert it to the wall and they're like, wait, 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 um, this isn't what was supposed to happen at all. And the reason, the reason why they're cranky is because, uh, the department of defense requested a certain number of all of these things. And Congress actually overfunded uh, mm-hmm. a few of those. They were like, actually go buy a couple more than you asked for. Um, and then anywhere where there, where there were those, uh, surpluses basically, um, uh, the Pentagon has now just scraped off the, the right. surplus and is and is sending that uh, is sending that money to the wall and so people like uh, like Congressman Mac Thornberry who uh, who chairs the uh, oh now I'm blanking on the name of the committee it's Ar- Armed Armed Services Committee I think in the House um, who who decides how many helicopters we're going to buy around here you guys are us you right, know? Right, so right. so they're cranky at, uh, on about that sort of thing but but really I mean the the only difference between now and then is that. This year, I mean, is that this year the Pentagon is is flexing these muscles a little more in a way that hurts Congress more. But but the but the, the ball was dropped last year. I mean, right? right? Like that, it was sort of once you sort of waved this thing through and were like, you know, yeah, I guess this is the way it's going to be. Then you're sort of at the mercy of of the executive branch deciding yeah. what you are and what you aren't going to move. I have across. no sympathy so, for the people who voted yeah. for it are now being upset that like it's being coming from kitties that they don't like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how much wall has been built? That is a really good question. Um, most of the stuff that has gone up so far, and it's, I believe we're in the hundreds of miles at this point, but uh-huh. but but of that number, it's mostly repairs. To and, previous and, existing yeah, structures, right? Yeah, which is like, which is nothing, right? I sure. Mean, like a lot of this stuff was, was not, not in in good repair, but I mean, but there's a reason why why they're doing it again. And I, th- I think this, the, the the White House hopes that this, Round is going to basically get them where they want to go, where uh-huh. they can where they can go into the twenty twenty election, being like, we said we were going to b- build the wall, and we built the wall. There's a wall yeah. there now, you know. And I mean, um, what exactly that looks like, um, it's it's clearly not the the coast to coast big beautiful wall that that Trump described on the right. campaign. And Mexico is not like that, for it. right? Yeah, but but Although it, if I mean, you rename the Pentagon Mexico, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be like the ultimate own the lives. I, I would I would I would honestly kind of. I wouldn't hate to see that. Like, just in, in the moment, I, I would, it would. It would be awful. It'd be awful. Yeah. But my brain would be kind of like, okay, yeah. You know? <laughs> no, it'd be, it'd be like it'd be like Ron Burgundy saying to the dog, "I'm not yeah. even mad. I'm yeah. impressed." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, but I mean, they're basically going to have gotten to the what twenty five, twenty seven billion dollars that they initially said was yeah. their ask for the wall. They'll have moved that money now, so they have their money. And and for a lot of for a lot of Trump supporters, that's that. You know, it's like. He hasn't broken the law to do this, and he's gotten us our money for the wall. So, like, that's right. that's the win. Yeah. Um, so, while you were talking, news came out. Roger Stone, <sighs> 40 months? 40 months. So, that's uh, three years and four months, right? Uh, three times 12 is... 
Yeah. 36 yeah. plus 4 is 40, yes. Interesting. That's the most math I've successfully done on this podcast. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, don't know more about that. I don't know what, like much more about what the judge said from the bench and all that kind of stuff. The question now is, does Trump pardon? I mean, who knows what Trump's going to do minute to minute, let alone, you know, like looking forward into the future. I, I'll say if he if he does pull the trigger, then we'll be like, OK, yeah, he's been laying the groundwork for this for like weeks. Right. I mean, he's why else go to all the trouble of pardoning like every high profile corruption guy who's, who's been put in jail in the last 20 years or whatever, like like, like he did earlier this week and, and salting it with, you know, a bunch of other perhaps more, perhaps not more uh, deserving pardons, clemencies, commutations, those sorts of things. I mean, it's clearly, clearly he's got this case on the brain. I mean, and, and when Trump has a brain worm, more often than not, he goes and does something about that brain worm. Yeah, so um, um, we talked about this on the Dispatch podcast yesterday, and Sarah Esger actually did a great little, if people are interested in the 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 details of the pardons and commutations. She actually went through each case and put them into mm-hmm. different categories from totally defensible to, eh, to my God, right? To Blagojevich. Yeah. And, um, uh, and my position on that podcast was that this was all ground prep for mm-hmm. stone. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not, you know, I, I, my prediction, my predictive powers have been weak of late, but, I would say odds that Trump pardons Roger Stone before he leaves office are 100%. Interesting. Pardons or commutes, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the thing is. Um, odds that he does it this weekend, by the end of this weekend, are right now I would say 25%. Hmm. And then they kind of like dip down for a while right after it's out of the news cycle. But, you know, he he wants to do it. He clearly wants to do it. He was tweeting while the judge was talking mm-hmm. on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, and for all we know, Stone actually knows things that Trump does not want out there. Mm-hmm. And so, like, pardoning him would make some sense. But assuming Stone stays loyal and follows Omerta and all right. of this stuff. Which, I mean... At this point, why wouldn't right. he? <laughs> exactly, right? yeah. You know? um, uh, guarantee he's 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 pardoned or commuted or whatever. Um, there's a third thing in the pardon powers: pardon, commutation, clemen, uh, clemen, maybe clemency. Yeah, that's a word I've heard over the last couple of days. I yeah, don't look, they do exactly uh, what they all mean. <laughs> I can't I can't remember the difference between clemency and commutation. Um, so so one thing that I've just been batting around in my brain, and I don't know whether there's anything to this. I do wonder whether. Part of the reason why um, why AG Barr stepped in and and sort of overruled his own line prosecutors, which was a whole huge deal, long in the past a week ago, um, and 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 basically was like this this is this is an excessive sentence, um, and and the fact that now uh, he's been sentenced clearly to less than what the prosecutors were asking okay. for. They were asking for seven to nine. But here's the weird thing. I don't know if you saw this as you were en route to get here. Uh-huh. On the Twitters, um, Kyle Cheney was tweeting about it. The new prosecutors, the ones that replaced the ones who all quit, uh-huh. they reverted back to the original 
ex, quote unquote harsh and excessive. The seven and nine? Yeah. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> it's bizarre. That's remarkable. Yeah. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know why. And maybe maybe the, the, this was wrong, but they were quoting screen grabs from things. And it okay. So totally clearly, clearly I am. I, I have I have no analysis for this anymore. I have no idea. I have no idea what's up with that. That's the only reason I interrupted you is I didn't think you knew that. Yeah. It's why Why so let me Why weird. let me continue to spin my wheels? Like, no, that's that's bizarre. Yeah. I'm I'm really that's fun. See, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. If if you want politics as entertainment, you're having a good time. Right that's right. Now. I mean, the choices are rage, numbness, or entertainment. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, so speaking of that, we're, we're we've gone a while now, but uh, I just wanted to ask you, um, how have you liked being at the dispatch? Uh, you did not know I was going to ask you this. What are your likes, dislikes, uh, concerns? Um, of course, I have the ability to cut out any answers I don't like. Yeah, this, yeah. Uh, or probably fire me. I guess I don't know for a fact. Do you are, Do you have the ability to fire me? I think I'd have to... Uh, we'd try to do everything on that kind of level by consensus. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But... So as long I, as as long as I like you know I'm 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 having dinner with Toby in a couple nights. So as long uh, as I charm him, I can say whatever I want to right now. Uh, I think if I insisted, <laughs> <laughs> um, you'd be toast. Yeah, but uh, right, you know, right. yeah. no. I mean, it's been it's been really good. I uh, De- Declan and I are are. Our spirit animals now, so yeah. uh, we, we I feel like we work well together. I mean, the morning I, dispatch is going great; people yeah, love it. No, you know? we 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 like writing it. I mean, we, last night was a late night. Uh, we, yeah. we need to figure out how to not be writing for the website on the same day, so that we can, you know, yeah, <laughs> we, we we can get better about juggling which days are like the insane days and which days are like the merely hard days. Yeah. Um. But but no, it's been it's all been really good. I've been I've been sort of surprise I, I i didn't i did not have access to like the the numbers for like the first mm-hmm. month or whatever that we were writing it and then when i when i started to see the numbers i was like oh there are uh, a lot of people reading this thing i guess i should yeah like and it's good people i mean the, I, the quality of the eyeballs is very strong better. we got a bunch of requests from like the hill for group discounts because the offices everyone there reads it and that kind of stuff um it's kind of unsustainable how much how little sleep Steve is getting because right. there's one thing for people your age to go with like little sleep. No, 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 no. Uh, Don't say that. I'm not, I'm not, doing, I'm not going with no sleep for very much longer. <laughs> uh, but no, it, like it's, it's, it's hard. I know we, uh-huh. we appreciate it. Um, and does it, I mean, you worked at the weekly standard and then you worked at the bulwark mm-hmm. and now you work for us. So you're used to being hated and despised by a certain crowd. We don't have to get into names, but, um, has that gotten more intense, less intense, about the same? I or you just don't care anymore, so I you don't, don't even know. I mean, I, I I've never really been a big enough name to draw. I mean, like I'm I'm blocked on Twitter by the people you'd expect to be blocked by, but yeah. like I I I don't come in for the kind of like daily beatings that that like probably you and Steve and all these people, David, obviously, um, are are are, are getting. So I mean, it's. I, I do enjoy the fact now that I am I'm less of a, a takes merchant than I was uh-huh. uh, at at, at we enjoy the, that the too. bulwark. All right, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, come on, you liked my takes, Jonah. I did like but, your <laughs> takes, but but that's not what we are. Right, right, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it, it's just it's been it's been a it's been sort of a relief to just be able to sort of step back into the role of you know fact gathering assessment, like just like trying to keep my feet underneath me when it comes to like because a lot of the times I, I'm I'm pretty young and I don't uh-huh. I don't feel like I have a lot of subject matter expertise on 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 these things at least independently like uh, presumably by the time i've written a thing i will have had i will have acquired some sure. some very very narrow yeah. <laughs> layer of it but it's it's nice you to know more to... about the current state of the wall than i do so yeah right, that, right right so you can right. reporting on yeah, yeah yeah um but no it's good i mean it's i've i've i'm enjoying my time i like reporting yeah. i like 
I, I've been enjoying the campaign stuff particularly. Um, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we're not going to, I'm not going to get into the airing of the grievances right now, but it is, uh, there's been a lot of very, I want to be careful about how I phrase this, very dumb and asinine things written lately about me, Steve, David, what we're doing, all this kind of stuff, um, both on Twitter and also at various websites. And so I've been doing this for a long time, right? In the internet years, I'm Methuselah. Mm -hmm. And I know a good amount about a few subjects, right? No, a little bit less about even more subjects. I'm, Is this where we work in the Bigfoot erotica joke? No, no, not yet. Uh, and um, um, But the one thing I am America's foremost expert on, better expert than any living human being okay. on the planet, is my own motivation. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, that doesn't mean I have perfect knowledge of my motivation, right? Because sometimes confirmation bias sneaks in and all that kind of stuff. But when people write incandescently stupid things about like me wanting to be beloved by liberals and all of these kinds of things, it makes me immediately dismiss right. what they write and often what the people who thought this was an interesting piece right. to publish in the first place. Well, they should have written that about me because I do. I desire to be beloved. I desire to be beloved by everybody. That's my. I picked the wrong field for yeah. that. But it's uh, you know. And if you weren't a ginger, it'd be so much easier. Oh, right. Yeah. But, no, it's it's that like it's like the Pam Beasley line uh, from from The Office to quote uh, an entertainment program that I am actually familiar with uh -huh. as a as a child. Um, but, uh, it's the, uh, I don't like thinking that anybody doesn't like me. I don't even like that Al Qaeda doesn't like me. <laughs> I, I like to think that if they got to know me, they'd like me. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's not in the cards. Uh, trust yeah. Me. Right. 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 Uh, <laughs> well, but, whatever. I've, I've, you know, that, that ship has sailed. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, that stuff, I mean, I, I think it's, there's just this fascinating thing. Like if I say, if I were to say, Let's just say you and I we're not we don't have microphones, right? And we're just talking. And I were to say that necrophiliac pedophiles are bad people. And you were to respond, Are you talking about me? <laughs> You'd be telling me something interesting about you, right? That like somehow I might yes. think you were one of those people. In this very strange hypothetical, I suppose I would be telling you about <laughs> myself. And so, like, when we, you know, when we're quoted in the Atlantic or someplace saying something about how clickbait is bad or about how water carrying for Trump is bad, it is interesting how many people assume that I'm actually talking about them. Right. You know, and I understand that, you know, sometimes there are ambiguities and maybe I, it sounds like I'm spe speaking with too broad a brush. But some of these people just, it, it, it clearly hits a nerve um, that, you know, that they think that trying to like be fact driven and not sensational and not go um, for the easy outrage and hot take stuff um, is breaking their food bowl yeah, and yeah. that somehow it must be because I am desperate to be, um, you know, a speechwriter in the Bloomberg administration right, right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a very weird time. Um, it's interesting to how many people, how many people want us to succeed and how many people want, to, want us to fail uh -huh. and the differences between them and how many of the people who want us to fail think that their stuff that they're doing is like not known to us, um, but like people tell us things, and it's just it's a sometime 
this portion of my memoirs will be interesting. <laughs> um, but anyway, I uh, want to thank you for all the hard work that you've been doing. Um, you're doing a great job. Morning Dispatch is great. People can sign up for it at thedispatch.com. And they should. And they should. Um, because it's it's what people in the know are reading. That's what the people in the know have told me anyway. That's right. Um, and um, uh, we will be back at some point in the future with uh, more hot, hot podcast action. And I'll see you next time. It's like when you get a new car, your first mess up of it is really going to make you sad. Yeah. When you drop some coffee on it, it stains it permanently. Because I've found that blood and viscera clean up really well off yeah. of a metal surface. Right, right. Um, yeah, do our best. <laughs>